Right, so good morning, everyone. Good morning to those who are joining us online. It's a bit weird for me to be here today as I look out and I see everyone who's come to church this morning. I find this moment a bit weird because the last time I stood here was December 16th, 2019, right? December 16th, 2019. So I find this a bit weird. It's like I'm, I'm preaching for the first time. I'm all, I'm all nervous and stuff. Like my heart is literally beating out of my chest. But man, it's a good to just see your faces. Mm. If you remember last time uh, when I preached on James, I spoke how the word of God is like a mirror. When you look into it, you see the ugly side of sin, but then you also see the reflection of God as he challenges us, as he convicts us of sin, and has, as he actually wants to move us away from sin and, and to conform us more into the image of his son. And you know, for me, when I was a teenager, for the better part of my teenage life, I had a stepdad. My stepdad was an outdoorsy type. He liked baseball and hockey and hunting and fishing, and he just loved everything that had to do with the outdoors. For all intents and purposes, I wasn't. I was more of a city boy. I liked just being indoors. I loved doing things indoors. I played soccer as opposed to him liking baseball and, and hockey. I even had a band. And so there was this contrast between him and I. And truth be told, my brother was more of an outdoorsy type. He liked baseball. He liked hockey, he liked hunting, and he liked fishing. And so as time went on, naturally and unfortunately, my stepdad began playing favorites with my brother and I. Because my brother was more into what he was doing, he became his favorite. And I don't, I don't, I just want to clarify this for a second, I don't fault my brother at all for feeling, or for, for getting caught up in this. But as a young man, it absolutely crushed me. It destroyed me. And so I was very much at the receiving end of, of being played the favorite. And so when I looked at this text today, I felt very anxious and very uncomfortable with it because I felt like I was, again, looking into that mirror. It was reminding me of something that I had experienced so long ago. But yet, I was challenged because God wants me to release that back to him, to come before him to move past it. The other thing with this text that makes me uncomfortable is its message. You know, it's one thing to preach about sin in general, but then it's another thing to preach on a specific sin, and not just a specific sin, but as James puts it, a sin that is rampant inside the church. But truth be told, this is what happens when you preach through a book of the Bible. You undoubtedly come before uncomfortable texts. And as we approach James chapter 2, I want you to keep something in mind. James is writing to a church about favoritism, about the sin of favoritism. And he writes to this church in a completely pastoral loving way, telling the church why God hates favoritism. Now for some of you, this message, this message might land close to home. And believe me, I am with you. I am so with you on this. I've lived through this topic. I know what it's been like to be cast aside as the second pick. And for others, this text might be confronting. Just for the record, 
I didn't wake up this morning. I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to preach to a group of people today who are going to come to church and they're going to show favoritism and then be like, I'm going to go straight to Matt and I'm going to say, Matt, I hate your preaching. In fact, I would rather Pastor Steve be up here because he's a much better preacher than you are. No, I, I didn't think that. And I really hope you guys don't think that either. That's not what I thought this morning. But that's why this sin is so difficult to address because it's a subconscious sin. So before I get into chapter 2, I just want to make note of these two quick verses at the end of chapter 1 because they're kind of like James' thesis statement. He's, he's setting up the stage with these two verses for what's going to happen in the next 13. So as we do this, don't lose sight. We're going to talk about pure religion and what is pure religion before God, but these, these two verses, they, they really do talk about favoritism, right? So verse 26 If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. And so if you're following along in your Bible, you may notice that the wording is a bit different. I'm I'm actually quoting the CSB, all right? So just want to toss it out there. But for James, religion isn't this cold, monotonous, dead system of doing churchy things. No, for James, religion is more akin to this genuine faith. It's a genuine faith experience. It's to understand what's at the heart of the Father, right? It's to understand what pleases God. And then it's to take what pleases God and reflect it in your life, to be obedient to what pleases him. You see, we're already told in chapter 1, when you look back, uh, that James says to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become anger when it comes to the word of God. Unfortunately for many, this is simply ticking a bunch of boxes, Religion has no semblance of genuine experience or a genuine faith experience. It's all truly just very robotic. And so when you look at 26 and 27, James is kind of continuing his thought from, the first, from chapter 1, but it also ties into chapter 2 as well, right? Pure, pure religion is not just about obedience, according to James. It's not simply following a bunch of rules. In fact, if this is what your religion consists of, if this is what your religion is, guys, I'm sorry to say this, but it's useless, and you are sadly, sadly deceived. No pure and undefiled religion is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. It's about putting the needs of others before your own. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. This is the sacrificial. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now I want you to hold on to chapter, or sorry, verse 27. I'm going to come back and actually unpack it in verse 8, because I think verse 8 really explains what James is, is talking about in verse 27, right? And so for James, the, the whole idea of favoritism, or sorry, the whole idea of avoiding favoritism is a large part of what it means to have pure and undefiled religion. And so for the next 13 verses, James James is going to define favoritism. He's going to explain favoritism. And then he's going to give us some practical steps at avoiding favoritism. And so I'll break it down like this. I don't have like three points per se, but when I looked at the text, this is how I saw it. So verses 1 to 4 is favoritism defined. Verses 5 to 7 is favoritism explained. And verses 8 to 13 is favoritism avoided. 
I think we'd all agree that the last thing the church wants to do is look like and act like the world. You see, the church is called out from the world, and yet the church is supposed to be in the world. We're here to represent God, to be his ambassadors, to proclaim the gospel and to testify to his goodness, his mercy, his love, and his grace. But if we're not careful, church, if we're not careful, we will look exactly like the world. And one way that can happen is favoritism. The truth is you can never, ever, ever have pure and undefiled religion if you're playing favorites both inside and outside the church. And if we're going to take this calling seriously, if we're going to call ourselves disciples of Christ and children of God, we cannot engage in this activity. Because when you do so, now listen, when you start playing favorites with people, you're actually becoming a judge over people. And when you start to judge, either consciously or subconsciously, now you're doing exactly what the world does. You're judging people based on worldly standards, and you're not seeing them through the lens of the gospel. But hold on to that thought. I'm going to get into that a bit more. So as I go through this text, I also just want to bring it to your attention that if I use the word partiality, it's the same thing as favoritism. They're just two different words. They just mean the same thing. So verse 2, for if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's hard-hitting. Now, just to paint some context into this, all right, many, many, many of the early Christian converts were not only financially poor, but they had come out of Judaism, and that's important, all right? Hold on to that. In a lot of ways, becoming a Christian, especially in the Roman Empire in the first century, was, it was pure insanity. Not only did you live with a worldview claiming that Caesar wasn't God, which, if I can remind you guys, would get you killed, but you also broke ties with the prevailing religious system that you and your family had grown up with for possibly thousands of years prior. You see, Judaism had some sort of element of safety inside the Roman Empire, but Christianity did not, not for at least 300 years. When you became a Christian, in the truest sense of the word, you became an outcast in society. These two things considered, all right, you could consider yourself, if you were a Christian in the first century, in a very unpleasant financial situation. But on the flip side, you also had wealthy converts, and herein lies the tension for the church. Whether the clash was with the wealthy and poor congregants, or it was a poor congregation welcoming in a wealthy visitor, the tension remained the same. Partiality, as you see in the text, was given to the wealthy. People were playing favorites with wealthy people as they came into the church. And you might be thinking, Matt, I don't play favorites. Really? Really? Even Jesus' own brother played favorites. The author of this book played favorites. In Matthew 12, we, we read of uh, James, actually, and his, and his mother and his brothers coming to see Jesus. And this is what it says. While he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, 
Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. You see, they expected Jesus to play favorites with them because they were family. And even, like, even, I'll give you another example. Even the church in Corinth, right? And we all know how messed up that church was. You read in chapter 3, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I know Jesus, right? Even these guys 2,000 years ago, even they played favorites with their teachers. So I don't think we should be so quick to say that we don't play favorites. But if we call ourselves disciples of Christ, we cannot play favorites, either morally, sorry, morally or biblically. Here's why. I'll give you two reasons. First, favoritism reduces the intrinsic value that humans have in the sight of God. I want you to think about who you are for a moment. I want you to think about you. What makes you, you? Let's say you walk into a room, right? And you see two tables. And at one of those tables, you see a group who comes from the same social class, same economic background, same phase of life. And at another table, you see a group of people who are very much not like you. They don't come from the same social class or the same economic background or the same phase of life. What do you do? There's only two tables. You're going to sit at one of them. At least in this scenario, you're going to sit at one of them. Almost instinctively, this is what each and every one of us will do. You'll relate better with one group over the other. One group will make you feel more comfortable, whereas the other doesn't. The group that is much like you is much safer and therefore more comfortable. And more comfort means more to gain. Subconsciously, what you're actually doing is you're judging one group over the other. And you're showing partiality or favoritism to the one group over the other. See, this is why I said this type of sin is so hard to address because it's a, it's a subconscious thing most of the time. But let's get real for a second. What about inside the church? Are we playing favorites with certain ministries? Are we playing favorites with our elders? What about our musicians? Do you tune into one preacher and tune out to the other when he's not up? Are you playing favorites with people based on age? What about a neighborhood? Do you play favorites with a neighborhood that you, uh, sorry, do you have a certain neighborhood that you favor over another? Do you favor the housing, the people, or the comfort of other neighborhoods over others? What about this? Are you struggling in your marriage? Or work? Or with family? Or with friends? And will you only turn to Steve and Debbie Bray for prayer because somehow their prayers are more effective or more righteous than the brother or sister next to you? Are we making distinctions based on what makes us comfortable? Like church, can we honestly say without a shadow of a doubt that we have never judged our own spiritual family or even visitors as they come in? Can we say that we have never judged based on, ex on external appearances? or any other reason for that matter? Could we stand before God and say, God, I have never ever judged someone or played favorites with someone inside the church? 
Because listen, if we think that we are safe from this sin because we have a well-paying job or that we're really an intellectually astute congregation or we really have a heart to serve in some ministry, then my brothers and sisters, we need to think again. But this is what the word of God says. We need to be looking into this like a mirror because the mirror says otherwise. The mirror says that we all suffer and succumb to favoritism. And when you really, really, really start to think about it, is not the root of favoritism self-righteousness or comparative righteousness? Right? I'm telling you guys, I struggled with this text. This was heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. But let me give you an example of what comparative righteousness looked like. There's a Pharisee who was standing by and he was praying like this about himself. God, thank you that I am not like the other people. Greedy and unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You see, comparative righteousness is taking something about yourself and comparing it with another person. In this instance, the Pharisee was comparing his great and amazing deeds against people who he thought weren't of the same class as he was. Effectively, he was saying, I thank you, Lord, for favoring me and not them. Thank you, Lord, for creating me in your image because you sure broke the mold with that person. But I want to confess to you, as a brother, I want to live out 1 John with you right now. I want to confess that I have given in to favoritism. And I want to do it using a hypothetical example. Imagine what would happen if one day you came to church and a new family showed up at this church. And you know, they're upper middle class. They have three kids. They drive the latest Dodge Caravan with a DVD player in it. (laughs) We see them and we're curious. Some of you even get distracted from the sermon while you're thinking about meeting them after the service. And naturally, as the service comes to an end, you rush outside, you start talking to them, figuring out their story, and if they're a Newfoundlander, how you're related, because let's just face it, as Newfoundlanders, that's what we do. There's always six degrees of separation between us and other people. But let's say next week, next week a guy comes in off the street Smells like he hasn't showered in a week and doesn't have a penny to his name. And as he comes in, he makes his way to the front. And he sits in front of one of our precious bubbles. How uncomfortable would that make you feel? Would you watch him with praying eyes, hoping and praying that he doesn't sit next to you? Would you catch up with him for a coffee? Would you add him as a friend on Facebook to try to figure out his life and who he is? How many of us would actually look at him, smile and nod and just make some sort of excuse to get away? Oh, my kids are hungry. Oh, I got to go and have dinner with family. But this is what we do. I've done it. I've done it in this church. I've done it in churches that I've attended in the past. And when I did it, I didn't live inside the gospel. I've become a judge with evil thoughts, and I've assigned myself greater value than the person who came in. 
And I can't even imagine how many times this dishonored God. But this is what favoritism does. It dishonors God. And, you know, so like as much as this text makes me nervous, there's so many examples that I think we could all bring up from our life to, to explain this. And, and I have another one I want to share with you. When I was in grade five at lunchtime, we would all run down from class outside into the schoolyard and we would play a game called tan ball. Now, some of you might know it by a different name, but this is a PG-13 sermon and we want to honor God with our words. But the point of tan ball was this, <laughs> to pelt your buddies with tennis balls as hard as you could. There was nothing loving about it. You see, you each have a tennis ball, all right? And you throw said tennis ball against the wall and you catch said tennis ball. But if you dropped the ball, then the opposing team would become a makeshift firing squad and you would be reminded of the importance of not dropping the ball. Somehow we thought this was amazing. Mm, it hurt. But then when it came time to picking teams, you'd naturally choose the biggest and the best dudes who could throw a ball at Mach 3. But there was always two kids who were picked last, Johnny Broken Leg and Jimmy Can't Run. And I'm sure anyone who has played a schoolyard game can picture Johnny Broken Leg and Jimmy Can't Run. There were absolutely two dudes who were picked as dead last to be on a team. But God does not do this. Can you imagine if he stacked the church with the best, the tallest, the smartest, the wealthiest, and the most righteous people? Do you know why God doesn't stack the church with the best? In fact, do you know why God stacks the church with the worst? Because there's no favoritism in him. None. Deuteronomy 10 for the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. Romans 2, for there is no favoritism with God. Ephesians 6, there is no favoritism with him. Acts 10, now I truly understand that God does not show favoritism. Not only when you show it, are you dishonoring God? But I'm going to contend, maybe worse, you don't understand the gospel. You see, three weeks ago, Curtis Rogers preached from Romans 8, and I want to come back to that for a moment. It was, it was a great message. This is what it says in Romans 8, verse 3, For what the law was powerless to do, in that it weakened by the sinful nature... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. You see, Curtis preached on the sovereignty of God that day, and in his sovereignty, he showed impartiality to us by sending his only son that he might die for the ungodly. Because from God's perspective, Calvary, we are all ungodly people. And the death of his son was impartial. There was no differentiation in who he died for. Verse 5, didn't God choose the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? You know, there's a bit of debate about verses 5 and 6. There are, people are on the edge about are the poor the financially poor or the spiritual poor? 
And although I'm sure James had a certain audience in mind, I don't think it matters, to be honest. The application still stays the same. Let, let me just explain this really quickly. From the world's perspective, both the financially and the spiritually poor are really outcasts. Or I think we'd all agree that the world looks at those two categories as the black sheep of society, right? Uh, how often do we see the world elevating the wealthy and yet it pushes aside the poor? It tries to sweep it under the rug. On, on the other hand, the world mocks, insults, and attacks the faithful and, and exalts any number of systems that draws people away from genuine faith. Take any ism, moralism, deism, atheism, humanism, pick, just pick one, anything that detracts from looking straight at God. But the fact of the matter is this, unlike the world, both the financially and spiritually poor are loved and known by God. God doesn't favor the rich. He doesn't favor the wealthy. He doesn't favor the middle class or the upper class or the lower class. He doesn't favor the teacher or the doctor or the grocery store clerk. No, in the gospel, there is no favoritism, either in matters of salvation or morality. Because in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek there's neither slave nor free, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus, amen? And no matter what way you spin it, Calvary, God chose the poor, verse 5, to be heirs of the kingdom. So we can't be complacent in this. We just cannot stand by. We cannot play favorites with people because each and every one of us was at one point spiritually poor. And Christ died for each and every one of us. We were dead in our sins. That is why Christ said, look to me, because I have leveled the playing field. If this was a divine game of tan ball, we would all drop the ball. And we would all be stood up against the wall and have divine tennis balls thrown at us. But praise Jesus that we don't, right? Praise him that he took the punishment for us. Everything Jesus did to save all of us, he did to save everyone else. And what's more, what's more, is that he did it impartially. Favoritism has no place in the gospel. Verse 8. How can we be different? How can we look less like the world and more like Christ? As cliche as this might sound, look to Jesus. Look to him as your example and as the person to follow. When you start seeing people through the gospel, you will be humbled. When you start seeing people through Christ, you will start seeing the value in every person and you will undoubtedly see the grace that was poured out upon each and every one of you. But the hard reality is this, is that Jesus not only came to seek and save the lost, and no doubt that does mean every one of us, but he spent a great deal of time with the poor. Now, save a couple of instances of Jesus healing some wealthy individuals or their children, for the, most part he, for, sorry, for the most part, he actually interacted with the social outcast, the poor, the destitute, and those who were suffering. But let me ask you a question. Why do you think the Pharisees were so ticked off with Jesus? 
All right, there's a number of reasons why, and he called himself God. I mean, there's that one. But what I'm getting at with this is because he treated the poor and the Pharisee the same. You see, the Pharisee favored certain classes of people in society more than others, but not Jesus, not Christ. Why did drunkards and sinners enjoy spending time with Jesus? Because Jesus showed genuine love, compassion, and interest, unlike the Pharisee. He looked past the external and saw the heart of the person. Are, guys, are we doing the same? In every instance, are we doing the same? You see, Jesus, exemp- sorry, Jesus exemplified what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. He modeled it perfectly. That's what the royal law is. That's what the, love of law, the law of love is. That's what the law of liberty, the law of freedom is that you see mentioned in James. But I want to park on this for just a quick moment, this whole loving your neighbor. Because there's pure gold in this. As I've been preaching through James, I've always come back to the fact that the book of James is all about faith and action, how our faith responds. And when you come to terms with the gospel and start loving your neighbor, your faith or your pure religion will respond. Back in Mark 12, some of the teachers of the law asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he responds by quoting Deuteronomy. Here's what Deuteronomy says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. Not only does Jesus affirm the Old Testament teaching, but he sets the example by which we must follow. And if we're going to be honest, there's no better person to look to and to learn how to love people than Jesus himself. One of the things I love about looking to Christ is how he takes our understanding of Scripture and blows it up. Blows my mind many times. He did it with the guys on the Emmaus Road. He did it countless times during his earthly ministry. Right? He takes our understanding of Scripture and he's like, oh, is, is that your standard? Is that your bar? All right, well, how about this? And he goes one step further. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman or a man lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Yeah, with her in his heart. You read that and you're like, wow, thanks, Jesus. Thanks for raising that bar. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now listen to this one. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? This is the heart of the royal law. This is the heart of Christ. And this is God's will for us because in the royal law, there is no favorites. If you want to glorify God, if you want to please him, and if you want to avoid favoritism, look to Christ Be doers of the word. That's back in James uh, chapter 1. Be doers of the word. 
Earlier this week, I sat down with the Mile One Mission team, and I did some brainstorming. I sat down, and I said, hey guys, I want to toss out some hypothetical questions for you. How do you practically stop yourself from stealing? Now, I just want to toss it out there. That's completely hypothetical. I don't struggle with stealing. But if you did, how do you struggle with it? Or sorry, how do you get through it? And then we tossed out some ideas like, you know, don't go shopping alone or by yourself. And then I asked the question, what about playing favorites? And then the room kind of got silent because that's a bit trickier to answer. As I've been saying a couple times now, when you play favorites, you're actually, it's actually like a subconscious thing. Very rarely will someone outright choose to, to play favorites amongst people consciously. But it doesn't mean that because it's subconscious, we get to sit back and just have our hands in our pocket, right? No, we got to wage war against this subconscious sin. Check out what Psalm 119 says. Teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instruction, and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. Help me to stay on the path of your commands, for I take pleasure in it. Turn my heart to your decrees and not to dishonest profit. Turn my eyes from looking at what is worthless. And then a bit later in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. You see, we all need help. We're all sinners. We need to be in the word. We need to have a teachable spirit. We need the Spirit of God to guide us. We always need to be on guard. We always need to look to Jesus. Don't forget James, the brother of Jesus. He went making demands to see Jesus, but he too had to learn to look at Jesus in awe. And once you look at Jesus in awe, you see everyone else in awe. Hence why loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself is so important but we're not going to be perfect at this overnight. It's a journey. So when you fail at it, and then, guys, no doubt we're going to. It's a given. Turn to Christ. Release it to him. Confess it. Come back to the word. Ask for help. Ask for the spirit to lead you. If, however, you show favoritism, verse 9 to 11 now, we're almost at the end of this, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors, for whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you murder, you're a lawbreaker. The point here is simple. Jesus is taking the Jewish law and flipping it back to his readers. He's looking at people who prided themselves in keeping the law and saying, you know what, you think you can hide behind the fact that you don't murder or you don't commit adultery? but you've broken the law because you failed to uphold the royal law. I don't know about you guys, but as we go through James, I feel like God's taking a chisel and he's just chiseling and cracking away areas that I got to give over to him, right? James chapter one has absolutely wrecked me and I'm starting to see, I think, why people don't like the book of James. But let me see if I can bring this all home. 
Verse 12 to 13, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. As uncomfortable as this may be to hear, God is a judge. He will judge the sinner and the saint alike. To the sinner, God will judge the sin, and to the saint, he will judge on on whether you've been obedient to his word and his will. And we'll look at that more in my next message. But this is the takeaway I want you guys to leave today with. Live your life worthy of the calling that you have received. Live and act as a believer who has been wonderfully redeemed from death and given life. Live and act as one who has been shown mercy and grace and love. Live and act as one who will be judged according to the law of freedom because Calvary, it is the law of freedom that has set you free to show mercy and grace and love. And when you look at people through the law of freedom, you really do see them through the lens of the gospel. And in the gospel, there is no differentiation. Regardless of how someone looks, each and every human carries the image of God And God screams, they are mine. Every wart, wrinkle, and spot, every pain, every hurt, and every betrayal, every sin, every action, and every ounce of rebellion, and he still says, they are mine. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you, Lord, that you didn't show favoritism when you died for us. Because before you, Lord, we are all ungodly. And so I just, I thank you, Father, for saving us. I thank you that we can come before you only because of Christ. We can pray to you and talk to you and commune with you and fellowship with you. But I also thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for this word, as challenging as it was for me to prepare and to preach it. I pray, Lord, not only for myself, but for everyone who is here and who is tuned in, that they would walk away seeing a bit different. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.